how do we know which games are in play, which games to use? How do we know what payoffs actually are in the real world? Can we just talk about this a bit more? Hadley, do you want to start us off? Yes, as Simon's indicated, we need to be very careful in uh, trying to force, as it were, particular real-world situations uh, into particular models, such as the prisoner's dilemma. What we're doing, really, is we're looking at various problems and we're considering various game structures which can be useful in analysis. And we're looking for features of those uh, real-world situations which seem to uh, make them appropriate for analysis in terms of particular games. But we don't want to see this as something which is hard and fast. We don't want to say, oh, this is a prisoner's dilemma type problem. This is an assurance game problem. We really need to look at the features of, uh, of what it is that we're trying to understand and then start asking, well, you know, is there a, a sort of uh, a game theory structure that would help us in, in analysing this? And as regards the payoffs, the numbers that we put in matrices, of course, have no real significance. What we're really doing is ranking preferences of the players when we construct a, a game theory matrix, and the numbers are there very much as, uh, as kind of indicators to help us to rank those preferences. Uh, I know students are often quite bothered about, well, where does 150 come from or where does 60 come from? And what we're really doing uh, in, in game theory is talking about uh, preferred outcomes and equilibria and the numbers themselves are just illustrative. So what matters is that, is that you can identify that a player would prefer this outcome to that outcome. Absolutely. Simon, do you want to come in on this? Yes, I think so. One of the things we should say about payoffs is not just the point that Headley's just made, that in a sense, the numbers themselves, in any absolute sense, are not important. It's it's the ranking that's important. So actually, one could have used letters and then just said A is greater than B, B is greater than C, and so on. So for preferred choices. But the other point is that the actors concerned that we're proposing to model through these various games don't need to be able to put numbers on the payoffs themselves and they don't even need certainty about the payoffs. What is needed for this to be a helpful representation is that actors act as if they do have preferences and in many cases they do, as we've seen from the, for example, G20 communique, they do state preferences and quite often one can see from as it were, the actual actions that people undertake, what their preferred course of action was or is. So as long as we've got enough information in that sense to say, well, a state could choose to regulate private financial institutions in a particular way in its territory or not, or it could choose to cooperate in an international body to write new rules about capital ad adequacy ratios for banks or not and so on, as long as we can go to that level and make some ranking of the choices that the private institutions or states are making, that gives us enough at least to start game-theoretic type reasoning. It doesn't necessarily tell us what the game is. So I think the most important thing for students to get out of this is not so much that you will necessarily be able to map particular games onto particular contexts that we're confronted with, particularly one as complex as, as the kinds of things we've been discussing, but it's still helpful to think through some of these things in game theoretic terms because it is a very good way of allowing us to think through issues of interdependence and allowing us to think through issues of divergence of, if you like, individual and collective rationality, that what makes sense for any one player may not make sense for that player 
taken in the context of other players making independent decisions, but where their actions are interdependent. And Graham, you questioned the use of game theory partly in relation to that idea of rationality. I think game theory is very good, I mean, in, in kind of calm times, really. And it seems to me that some of the sort of the, the issues that uh, Simon was just raising there are at least questionable amongst kind of financial agents when things hot up, if I might put it that, when enthusiasms, passions and emotions take over and where they don't quite know what their preferences are. I think there's, there's worth just recognition that it may not, that preferences and sort of, you know, moving to an equilibrium may not quite be kind of how the thing goes because it gets overwhelmed by behavioural enthusiasms and passions and emotions. You know, you get bandwagoning, people jumping on the bandwagon and everybody doing exactly the same as somebody else merely for the fact that somebody else is doing it. You get bubbles developing so that the whole system blows up and so on and people want to keep their own action going in that context. What is called animal spirits, what um, John Maynard Keynes called animal spirits, sort of not thought out but immediate reactions and... uh, quick, unthought-out actions. Those kinds of things, I think, if the financial system exposes those as part of the way that we, the economy works, I think, in a rather acute manner, and therefore, if this is the case, then kind of top-down sort of calculative mechanisms brought in to try and help regulation by, as I was saying, the BIS, the, uh, the Bank of Little Settlements, the IMF or the G20, might not actually work. And I think it's worth just thinking that there may be, a, to, to get a collective action, there may be a, another way of doing it, not having a top-down, but having very much a bottom-up, looking to what has actually happened with respect to the different particular financial systems, what regulatory mechanisms they've installed, and trying to build up from the bottom rather than, you know, setting up a, a global system which everybody has to rules, which everybody has to meet. So I think there's, a, there's an alternative way of thinking about the regulatory system, thinking of it very much like a, a natural disasters a little bit, that, uh, that it's inevitable that it will happen. We don't know quite when and where, but we know that it's going to happen again. What do you do if you're into that mindset? Can you network the vulnerabilities in the system from below rather than trying to establish a sort of common set of rules from above? And I think there's, a, there's, a, there's another way of thinking about how we might uh, respond to a crisis like this. So that would imply that at least in addition to thinking about the collective action problems among states in regulation, we also need to think about what are the opportunities for cooperation among other agents at a kind of lower level. You know, I think that... We need both rationality and top-down regulatory, but also very much bottom-up sort of forms of regulation as well in the manner. So I, I don't think they're exclusive, but I think the, 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 the minimal amount of collective action that, that, that uh, Simon was describing and Headley also that the G20 has come with is appropriate, but, but one suspects that uh, that won't be enough to, to stop these uh, cycles coming on again. And one probably needs to address it, uh, you know, a, a, a bottom-up approach at the same time. That would suggest a, a, a limited usefulness of game theoretic analysis. Yes, I think so. I think it's, it's an empirical question, really, isn't it? It's a question about... In what circumstances are the available strategies to various actors so uncertain and the ability of actors to rank their payoffs so indeterminate that it ceases to be helpful to talk about games than being involved in playing games or or modelling them in in game theoretic terms? And clearly there are circumstances where that happens where you simply can't describe a reasonably limited 
array of strategies open to an actor. You can't identify with any degree of even guesswork what the potential payoffs are of different courses of action. Because the situation's so fluid so, or so, so fluid, so fast-changing, so uncertain in Graham's sense, you know, that because some of the behaviour involved is, is so irrational or irrational, uh, motivated in kind of other ways that are not really amenable to those kinds of, broadly speaking, calculative kinds of reasoning. Clearly, in those circumstances, it's not helpful to think in game, game theory terms. It seems to me it must be the case that is sometimes the case. I I'd, I'd suppose it's really then a kind of an empirical question as to kind of how uncertain and how fast changing and how messy does the world need to get before one says these are no longer useful ways of thinking about it. I agree with Simon, you know, that this doesn't rule out the efficacy and the usefulness of game theory as a way of kind of, as a first stage of thinking about these things. It sets up a very logical framework in which one can isolate out what the strategies are likely to be and what the kind of interactions between the players are. And it's an absolutely key kind of first move. And it works certainly in calm times, and it's worth absolutely doing. There is this other uh, sort of element which you've kind of uh, mentioned, which I think um, can disrupt this at times. But in general, it's a, it's a most attractive and effective framework for thinking about the, the, the ways in which interaction around cooperation can develop. From the Open University... For more information, go to www.open.ac.uk forward slash use.